0: You're listening to The Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on November 10th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Business, Innovation, and Managing Life Q&A. And I guess we have a whole bunch of questions that were left over from last time, and they're probably new ones for today. But let's see how, how I can get through these. There's a question here from Aaron. How do you plan and track your product roadmaps? How far in advance do you plan? Okay, that's an interesting question. One of the things that I try very hard to do, and we as a company also try hard to do, is to have things which are very long-term projects, maybe a decade, maybe more even, that are mainstream kinds of things, but not to be so inundated with those things that we can't do anything that takes advantage of new opportunities. And that's a challenging thing to be able to do, to have things where there are multiple timescales running at the same time. In fact, just today, I was uh, looking at an issue that we have. Uh, we, We always build what amount to special projects groups which are intended to do those smaller opportunistic kinds of projects. Our special projects groups are typically very successful. They're so successful that the projects they build turn into mainstream projects. And so they're no longer kind of the fast little speedboat type things. They become giant aircraft carriers of their own. And so what has had to happen in the history of our company is we've gradually been sort of advancing building, we have a special projects group, pretty soon it becomes a general group that is doing a mainstream thing, and we have to build another special projects group. And sort of the plan had always been, which sort of works out more or less this way, that about half the people who are in the kind of the leading edge, do the new thing, uh, special project, end up cycling into the next new, do the new thing, special project, and half end up being with that project when it goes mainstream. So that, that's one of the issues. Now, in terms of, of um, uh, planning out what we're going to do, uh, we've actually, we have a pretty strong project management infrastructure. And um, we have gradually gotten to the point where we really have a pretty good list of the few hundred projects that are our kind of top projects that we want to do. And that list, it has, each project has a variety of states. It's, the the project is a new project, hasn't really been looked at at all. It's under investigation. It's like, how hard is this project? Is it really worth doing? It's green lighted. We wanna do this project, but we don't yet have resources allocated for it. Then it's underway, then it's done, then it's in maintenance mode. And another case is the project gets hibernated for one reason or another. Uh, either we decide it isn't uh, the highest priority right now, resources shift, something happens, it gets hibernated, and, and it can hibernate for a period of time from a few months to many years. And the idea is to get keep the information well enough, which we do a pretty good job of, that if you want to dehibernate it five years later, you can do that. So we were just dehibernating. Oh, gosh, what was the project? We were just looking at where I was a little bit Upset that we were looking at things from five years ago um, that uh, um, oh my gosh, what was this? It was probably within the last two days. Uh, what was it oh i don 't remember, but in any case the um, the good news was we knew exactly where to find the files, we knew exactly we had all these notes from what had been done, and nothing had happened on this project for five years, but now it was coming back to life again, and we were uh, we're able to kind of, uh, uh, start off where, where we, where we left off in terms of, of the tracking process for projects. Typically I try to make sure that eventually every project is in some meeting that is a regular kind of meeting that happens with me or some smallish set of senior management folk. Um, and, uh, that there's no project that just sort of ha- is, is floating off somewhere and never is attached to something that shows up in some review meeting. And projects, when they're very active, and when there are a lot of things to figure out about them, will be in review meetings that happen every week, every two weeks, sometimes every month. And where those are the places where we're, we're kind of um, sort of actively trying to figure things out. And, and some of those meetings, uh, people will have seen them being live streamed. Um, where we, uh, we're kind of making decisions about what to do with particular projects and designing things and working out how we build what we're going to build. Now, I, I will have said, by the way, in, in our sort of global project list, one view of the global project list is as these are the projects we want to do. Another view of the global project list is strategic objectives that we have as a company. And there is an effort to kind of crosswalk the two different teams that build that are responsible for sort of initiating the, these are the bundles of strategic objectives we have versus these are the specific projects we're doing. And there's an effort to kind of crosswalk between those two things to say this project, which strategic objectives does it relate to? This strategic objective, what projects does it need? But those are two separate tracks that are being cross-connected. Another thing, in addition to projects, we also have processes where there are things like, oh, there's this, I don't know, website website, whole system on some website and it's like you know twice a year somebody's got to look at it and see does it need modernization what are we doing with it is it running just fine etc 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 um so that's a, a different list and that's something where the the things that were in the project list uh some of them will transition to the process list some of them are pure processes like we just found a process that was broken just today having to do with um moving websites to HTTPS and then not dealing with redirects correctly, and it was something which, its visibility, you know, sometimes with these processes, what's important is to know kind of, uh, you know, what initiates looking at that thing again. And this was, oh, some browser got upgraded and so it changed its treatment of redirects with HTTP to HTTPS and so on, and so something broke, but we didn't have a lot of visibility about that. And there wasn't an obvious sort of timer that says, when this happens, do that type thing. Because we have plenty of things which are sort of on a timer when there's a new version of some product or when there's a new release that we have internally or something like this, um, then then take this action. and, And that's a useful thing to have. Let's see. Okay, another more questions. Another one from Aaron here. Do you decide to go to bed based on, on the time or once you finish a piece of work, do you like to leave your pieces of work open to sleep on? Okay, so, you know, I am a creature of, of, of tremendously great habit. Uh, you know, I always like to think that I do things purely spontaneously, but when I've looked at data and I have all the data, I have a, you know, I, I go to sleep at a very tightly, you know, constrained time and even this, you know, daylight savings time shift I can see that has the effect of, of doing something. So, you know, particularly in the last couple of years, because I haven't been traveling and I've been just uh, systematically doing my thing, so to speak. Uh, I'm even more habitual probably than I've ever otherwise been, but you know, I find I fall asleep. I, I, I start feeling sleepy at a certain time. It's about, um, uh, well maybe 2am or so. Um, but, um, uh, and that's kind of the timeout because, I stopped being able to do such productive work at that time. I hate leaving things unfinished. I, I really, if I'm writing something, for example, I make a big effort to finish the section I'm writing because I find that if, I'm, if I come back and do that again, uh, so, so my work tends to be have different characters. So, so one thing is I am writing something on my own that's a kind of a solo project. And uh, I like to do sort of finish the section type thing Another type of thing I'm doing is much more micro, it's dealing with uh, email, all the issues that come in there that I deal with and I write responses and so on, that's much more granular and I can kind of say, oh, I'll do one more piece of email, that's going to take me another five or 10 minutes or, or one minute or something and then I'm done, I'm going to go to sleep. But when I'm actually writing something which is a big piece that might take me a couple of hours to write some section... Um, then I make a big effort to finish that, even if i 'm feeling kind of tired, um, but I also well know that if I get really tired, then the things that are really kind of difficult to you know where I need a lot of state to be able to figure it out i 'm not going to be able to do a good job and, and The frustrating thing when i when I write things, for example, some of the more complicated things I write, uh, like I was just working on something about this thing that I call the Ruly ad, which is kind of this infinite limit of infinite collections of possible entangled computations. And it's a pretty hard thing to understand. It might be the most the most abstract thing that we can even imagine, actually. Um, in some sense, that's probably true. Uh, and so for me, you know, working on things about that, I kind of have to get myself kind of in, in the right mood and in the right zone and with all the sort of state information to be able to make progress on that, or I just can't, Figure out the next step, and so I like to with a project like that. I like to really push, push, push to finish it, even if I get a little bit tired at the end. Um, but I don't like to, uh, you know, I, I I become non-functional within probably forty-five minutes of when I when I would otherwise uh, uh, sort of feel tired and so on. So that's I, I mean, some people like to. Uh, so I I pretty often do something else, which is that. I'll, be, I'll, I'll have a lot of momentum. Once I've, once I've finished some section of what I'm writing, I'm like all jazzed up. I'm, you know, I'm, things are really rolling. You know Words are coming out. Ideas are coming out. Things are getting figured out and so on. Um, and I find that uh, sometimes with that momentum, I'll go and I'll write the beginning of the next section. I, I kind of think that's useful because I get to sort of think about it some more, but it's also a negative because I'll come back and look at it the next day or whenever I get a chance to look at it again. And I'll be like, well, let me try and graft something onto what I already wrote, because what I already wrote sounds pretty good. But I always find that when I'm sort of in a different state, a different mood and so on, it's very hard for me to do that kind of connecting, connective surgery to, um, to a piece of, uh, of what I've written. And I find it's better to just say, let me just start again. I'll take those, that basic idea and start again. Um, I think uh, one thing I found, this is a really bizarre phenomenon. I wish I understood a little better. You know, when I write things, my big disease is leaving words out. So I'll just be, I I don't know, I'm probably thinking a little bit faster than I'm typing and writing and so on. Um, And so I'll just, I'll leave words out. And here's the really strange thing. You know, people proofread my stuff and uh, sort of, so I have some measure of how many words did I actually leave out. And here's the strange thing. If I just keep looking at the piece of text. I'm not really thinking about the piece of text. I'm not reading it. Somehow I keep on noticing these words that got left out, even though I'm not actually consciously reading word by word by word. And I've been surprised at how, how comparatively rare words left out are detected by people proofreading my stuff um, relative to the number of times I notice words left out. And so what I think I've realized is that just plainly staring at the piece of text, even if I'm not reading it, somehow one is subconsciously processing it and noticing that words are left out. And that doesn't happen if, you know, if I look away and look at something else, it doesn't happen. So I make an active effort to, you know, keep looking at the text, even though I'm not reading it, I might be thinking about something different. Um, but uh, uh, so th- that's, that's kind of my, my approach to this in... Um, uh, oh, I, I should say, you know, one of the things I try to figure out is, uh, you know, when I'm tired, I know there are things I can do when I'm tired and I can't do them when I'm not, uh, I, 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 the things I cannot do when I'm tired. So for example, some kinds of writing, I can do okay when I'm tired, but anything that's really conceptually complicated, I, I I can't do that very well. Writing code, for some reason, I can do when I'm pretty tired. That doesn't really seem to seem to be so dependent on that. I think it's something where there's a, a tighter feedback loop, particularly I'm always writing code in Wolfram language. So, so that's... Uh, uh, you know, it's a symbolic language where every fragment of code still runs. So it, it has a sort of different rhythm of debugging than, oh, you write this big lump of code, you compile it, you see what goes wrong type thing. That's not what I'm doing. I'm doing little pieces and um, seeing how those work. And somehow that tight feedback loop of debugging perhaps helps not really have it be that important, how, how tired or not I am. And I find that... Um, uh, so I, I do try to sort of reserve some things for, oh, if I'm tired, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I suppose in my sort of pathology of, of organization, I, I tend to have various kinds of collections of things to do when, whatever. So I, I maintain a things to read folder that um, I'll, you know, I, I typically I'll read those things like, you know, on my phone or something when I'm waiting in a line somewhere or some such other thing like that. Um, or other sort of interstitial time. Um, that's my collection of things to read, uh, you know, that are ready and that, you know, accumulate over some period of time. And, and they don't, they, you know, when I, I and, and I gradually read them. I also have a things to watch folder, which I have to say is quite new. And I, I don't really watch that many videos and things, but I gradually put things in there. I think I've been, I've been, um, I, uh, uh, I I have, I, I suppose it's my, you know, when I get sick, if I get a cold, if I get a virus, whatever, uh, then then it's kind of and I'm I'm kind of laid up. It's like I reserve things to do when I'm sick, and I kind of figure that that's a sort of compensation. If I'm sick, I'll I'll be upset about that, but at least I'll have these things that I've saved up to do. Actually, touch wood, I haven't been sick for two years now. So, so um uh, it's uh we'll we'll see how that progresses. I did a study actually. Which is not yet complete of I have like much data on, on these kinds of things because I have data on everything. I think in the last 25 years, I know of 17 times when I 've gotten sick, and I think there are a few others when I was traveling and things which I haven 't been able to detect, and so I 've been curious, what are the correlates with when I got sick? Is it when I'm around a lot of people? Is it when I'm traveling, et cetera? Um, I don't yet know the final results for that, so coming soon, I hope. Um, but uh, Uh, that's, you know, I, I tend to reserve these things to do for times when, uh, you know, when, for whatever reason I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just things to read things, things to, to watch, whatever. Um, I also tend to maintain a list of, for example, uh, things to see when I'm in place X or people to see when I'm in place X. And sometimes those will accumulate for 20 years because it's like, oh, I always wanted to go to that museum if I happen to be in country X. But, you know, I haven't been to that country maybe ever or whatever else, but it's something I want to do. And I kind of keep this list of of what to do if I am, you know, in such and such a place. And I've had the list for for many, many years, and gradually things get checked off as I finally find myself in in place X or Y. Let's see. Uh, The question here from Parmenides about what impact is China's energy crisis going to have on manufacturing? Am I worried about inflation of the U.S. dollar, Um, and uh, or do I not worry about larger macroeconomic events and just focus on business? Uh, I, I pay attention to the news. I try and figure out what I can about what's coming. I have to say this is a time in history where that's deeply confusing. I don't know what's coming. Um, and I talk to lots of other people who um, uh, sort of people who like me like to pay attention to these things and generally have lots of opinions and thoughts about what's coming. And I, I have to say, this is a time of great confusion about what's coming. And I think, you know, we see that in, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say our, our company has been doing well last little while. Um, I can't say I know completely why. I mean, I think generally when the economy is down People, I think, tend to think more, and so they tend to use our products more. Maybe um, the economy isn't really down, or at least doesn't seem to be down. Um, I think you know we see people who are uh, sort of the, the the types of people who are enthusiastic about the kind of mission our company has. We see lots of those, uh, you know, uh, applying for jobs and so on. We have, um, but we have other places where we're seeing nobody applying for jobs. Um, and I, you know, it's a big mystery to me, where where is everybody, so to speak? Um, I think that, um, uh, you know, that's an example of something. In terms of the whole question about inflation, obviously, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, there's theories about a little bit of inflation is a good thing, I don't know. It's, um, uh, you know, when things aren't, uh, uh, you know, one thing about doing business is that having an environment where things are fundamentally predictable is if, if for a business like ours is a good thing. There are businesses where no doubt one thrives on unpredictability and you know let's be a hedge fund and let's make this bet here or there. And If we can figure it out faster than the other guys, we come out ahead. But in our kind of business where we're working on long-term kinds of development projects and so on, you know, stability and predictability is good. That's why, for example, in countries around the world where it's not clear you know, what the rules are, when can you put up a website? What do you have to do to be able to put up a website? What do you have to do to do this and that and the other? When, when those things, when the rules of, of, of operation aren't clear, it's very hard to do business there. And you know, one has to decide, one wants to spend an awful lot of effort to do, uh, if one, to, to really do business. It's really important to do business there. Otherwise, it's not worth the effort. Because I want to concentrate and I want our company to concentrate on the things that I think we're, we're good at, that mostly has to do with developing products and, and so on rather than worrying about, you know, how do we, how do we comply with this or that thing in this place where we don't even know what we're complying with, and so on. And I think in, um, uh, in terms of, of, I mean, in in my particular way of, of doing business, uh, we're not, you know, we're edgy, I think, I hope, in the innovation that we do and the products that we build, but we're not really edgy in anything else we do. I mean, we don't do ornate financial transactions. We don't do ornate things with, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's very very unornate as far as the things that aren't our main business. Um, you know, we, we want to be, we, we don't want to be sort of uh, trying to, um, uh, you know, that that which we can do in the standard way, we might as well do in the standard way, and not try and do anything where we're spending all our time worrying about, oh, is that, is that weird you know, financial you know, hedge on some currency transaction and so on and so on and so on going to work out okay? That's not the business we're in, so we don't do those kinds of things. Um, and uh, so when it comes to something like, well, so, so these questions about, you know, is there going to be inflation? I mean, to me, a lot of what sort of happened in this, you know, let's just inject lots more uh, Money into the US economy and things like this, this is kind of the hundred-year test of economic theory. I mean, people, you know, at times in the past, when people have just sort of pushed various buttons, then things have really blown up. And but people say, but we understand why that happened. We understand why in the 1920s, 1930s, this or that happened, that's not going to happen again. Hopefully that's true. You know, I view this as being kind of the hundred-year test of economic theory. And I think that. Uh, you know, this question, even, you know, I was, I was realizing for some reason, thinking about this today, that, you know, what on earth does inflation really mean? Because it's, you know, we have the consumer price index, which is based on some bundle of goods and some bundle of, and, and you know, that's probably different. The things that I care about buying or spending money on may be different than what somebody else cares about spending money on. And it's not clear that, you know, it, it may be that all the things that I care about are going up in price, even though all the things that somebody else cares about are not going up in price. It's a complicated thing. And I'm I'm not really sure how that is going to come out. And I think there's a certain weird sort of self-fulfilling prophecy type thing when people announce there's X percent inflation, then people say, Oh, that means this and that and the other, even though for them, it might be even more inflation or much less inflation. It's not clear. And it'll be interesting to see what what happens with that and how that interacts with the whole labor market and so on. And I'm certainly, I'm certainly watch that. And I mean, for us as a company, um, there are things, I guess my point of view is there are things where you can make predictions about what's gonna happen and try and be sensible about them. As I say, we tend not to do things that are terribly ornate um, because I found that that's, you know, it's not our business to predict macroeconomic things in an ornate way. Um, it tends to be uh, um, something where um, the, um, uh, you know, occasionally, I, I think I mentioned sometime before, it's kind of funny, really, that, you know, because we've been doing a lot of stuff with blockchain, we occasionally get cryptocurrency. And uh, in our company, the question is, who is the cryptocurrency trader? And, you know, our company is, doesn't have, it's not, we're not a kind of company that has people who do trading, at least not. Except as a hobby, so to speak, and um, so we sort of realized at some point it was like, who's going to do this? And I realized I don't know whether there's anybody to do this, and you know, and people were getting very worried. What if I lose X amount of money by doing making the wrong trade? And it's like, okay, well, I guess I have to do it. And so I found it somewhat interesting. You know, I have a display of a bunch of crypto prices and so on, and I have to say, so far, I've I just noticed crypto. But all the cryptocurrencies went down a few hours ago i don 't know why um, maybe it's some some announcement usually usually you see the cryptocurrencies go down or up and then the, then you see a news alert come through about two hours later or something, which kind of tells you something about the way that the current economy and market is is set up but um, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that i've so far I, i'm rather proud of how how well i've managed to you know, time, various kinds of trades that I've made and so on. We'll see. I, the next one will probably be a total disaster. So I shouldn't have said that. It's kind of jinxed it. Um, but uh, uh, in any case, the, um, this whole question about uh, what's going to happen with, um, yeah, I, I think there's a time of great uncertainty. And uh, as a company, uh, you know, I would say that we have mostly been just doing what we've been doing before, um although i have been pretty conservative about for example spending money um because i really just don't know what's going to happen and uh i i don't want to be in a situation I, thankfully in the last uh 35 years of our company's existence you know thankfully we've never been in one of these situations where it's like oh my gosh you know there's no more money we've got to lay people off and things like that that's that's never happened to us and you know i i i value the fact that that hasn't happened and you know, plan to continue to make sure that doesn't happen. And that requires that one be somewhat conservative in, in even if one says, oh, look, everything's going great. You know, business is going great. Let's hire more people, let's spend more money. Well, that's not what I'm doing because I don't really know what the, I think this is a time of considerable uncertainty and I can't explain why business is going as great as it's going right now. Let's see, V asks, How is the ERP replacement project that was mentioned a year or so ago going? It's going pretty well. Um, ERP, enterprise resource planning, I think it's a a buzz term invented by people who make transactions, software, and so on. Um, It's a big project because it sort of touches many operations of our company. I was actually just noticing that some weekly reports that come through must now be being generated, because they look much more beautiful than they did before. They're being generated by the new system now, which is a good sign. Um, but uh, the, um, uh, yeah, it's going well, and, and actually a bunch of it is, well, it's, uh, some of it is in production right now, more of it is going into production uh, by the end of the calendar year, and uh, uh, in the course of next year, it will, it will all go into production. It's a tricky thing because, you you know, it's running our main transaction processing, accounting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, other systems. And it's not something where you can kind of take those out and, uh, uh, you know, or have those fail. Um, that, that's very bad news if that happens. Um, the thing that's been really, really nice about it is, you know, we have this kind of symbolic way of specifying products and things we sell and so on. And that's very, very nice and very flexible. And a huge win. And, you know, we went from a situation where when we introduce a new product, a new licensing scheme, a new uh, a new something like that, um, you know, we had had to do this. Oh, my gosh, we got to feed this crazy, crazy creature that is our, you know, old ERP systems, a standard big ERP system. Um, and, uh, you know, oh, it's going to take a week to re-specify the products for that to, oh, here it is. It's just this symbolic representation in a, in a notebook in Wolfram language and it's just that's ready to go and also we have this kind of pricing engine that lets us price more complicated things and lets us be more flexible in the way that we license things and that's that's a huge win so it's going well but it's a big project and uh, uh, once it's I mean you know at some point so anybody who's a, a budding entrepreneur who wants a a challenging project. We are, we're definitely looking, we we will spin off the CRP system as as a product that uh, that other people can get. And uh, we're looking for kind of a team to make that happen. Um, So something that's coming there. Uh, There's a question here from Mike. Has anyone built a computer yet that is good at programming other computers? Look, the real problem, it's like computer programs a computer, what, who programs the computer that programs the computer, and so on. And pretty soon it's computers or turtles all the way down, so to speak. The real thing, the real challenge is what do you want your computer to do? How do you say what you want your computer to do? The main idea of Wolfram Language is to provide as human compatible, as higher level description of the thing you want your computer to do as possible, and to make it be the case. It's our job to turn that kind of human level description of what you want into actual execution in on the computer. And I think we are doing an increasingly good job of that. Kind of the notion is if you can think about something computationally, it shouldn't be the case. You don't have to think about it down at the level of what what particular instruction should my computer run, but you do have to be able to conceptualize what you want computationally so that you can make it precise enough that you can tell the computer what you want. Sometimes, and, and that's something we do a lot, is the computer will use some heuristic to figure out, well, I'm pretty sure the person wants this. Maybe you check it with them, maybe you don't. Um, maybe that's the default thing that happens and so on. But you know, this is really the goal of Wolfram language is to get it to the point where it's really to the point where the human just has to figure out the part the uniquely, that the human uniquely has to figure out, which is what do they want to do? And then the rest of it is all automated by the computer. You know, I find it interesting as people learn, you know, they say, I'm going to go learn and be a programmer and I'm going to learn, you know, Java or Python or C++ or whatever else. And it's like, uh uh-huh, you know, that's interesting because, you know, what will happen over time, we're gradually automating that low-level programming. I mean, if you look at, you know, you write one line of Wolf language code, it turns into... Zillions of lines doesn't actually turn into those, but it conceptually is the equivalent of zillions of lines of, of low-level programming code. And any time we can successfully sort of package things up and represent them at a higher level in our language, we are, uh, we're able to do something which doesn't need the low-level programming. I mean, one thing to remember is, like, when I started using computers, the first language I used was assembly language. That was in the early 1970s. And even in the early 1980s, when I built my first big computer system was written in C, um, people would say, oh, oh, you know, you shouldn't use a language like C. You should write things in assembly language. Everything that's real, the real programmers all write in assembly language. People don't say that anymore. And gradually kind of the, the, the things have risen to the point where people expecting sort of higher and higher level ways to interface with computers What I've tried to do for the last 40 years or so is build this kind of computational language, which instead of being a programming language, it kind of panders to how computers are set up, is a language that tries to represent our human thinking in a computational way. So we're kind of coming in the opposite direction. Now, obviously with Wolfram Alpha, for example, we built the ability to just take pure natural language, pure English or whatever, and do things computationally from that. We can't get to the point where you can go from pure English to non-trivial, you know, program the ERP system from scratch with pure natural language, not a sensible idea. And what you find is that when it's sort of a short utterance, it's a big win to use natural language. When it gets to be this big structured thing, you're either writing legalese in English or writing something that sounds like, you know, a patent application or a complicated contract, because that's the way that you take English and make it precise enough that you can build those many layers, or you're using a computational language, and that's what we're trying to build with Wolfram Language, is the ability to do that. So, so our goal is to get to the point where the humans do what the humans have to do, which is say what they want, and then everything else is up to the language developer or ultimately up to the computer to execute, and this kind of watermark of where people need to be doing it by hand, you know, writing the assembly code by hand, writing the low-level programming language by hand and so on, that watermark gradually moves up and you're gradually able to automate those things and you need very few people to do those very low-level operations. And often those low-level operations eventually get to be done better by computer than they could be done by you know, artisans doing them by hand. And, and I think that's uh, the, the one thing that you'll never be able to automate is the question of, well, what do you actually want to do? You know, at the point where that's automated, the AIs have taken over the world. Um, Because at the point where the AIs are telling the humans, you should want this, you should do that. Well, then the AIs are in charge and it's over for us, so to speak. But as it is right now, we still have at least the idea that there's a point at which it says, okay, humans, what do you want? Okay, once the humans have defined that, then you can get the AIs to try and implement that. And so on. Of course, there are lots of complicated issues when different humans want different things, but there's sort of a shared resource that's being run by AIs that's supposed to, to sort of service the, the needs of different humans. That's a, that's a challenging situation that throws one rapidly into you know, what kind of political philosophy is the AI trying to do, and so on. Question from D0 here Do I agree that an, a life unexamined is not worth living? Oh, I don't know. I think that, um, uh, you know, I like doing intellectual things. I like thinking about things. Um, So for me, that's a lot of uh, a very, uh, uh, it's a fulfilling way to lead life. I'm not sure it's the only way to lead life. I don't think I would claim that. I don't think that one, I think it's always very hard to know uh, people, you know, this is this is an interesting challenge because it's a challenge that I find when I do mentoring of various kinds, is there's there's something where you see somebody and they're doing certain things and you can tell that they could do fancier things, they could do more things, they could do things that would have more of an effect on the world, they could do things that have generate um, more achievement. You can do things where you think they will feel more fulfillment when they do those things, but you know, uh, how hard do you, how hard do you push? And is it always the case? For example, you know, I think that there's a certain tendency if you are, I don't know, a tech entrepreneur, for example, you go to random country X or random place X, and people are mostly doing something completely different from being tech entrepreneurs. And you say, you know, you should be a tech entrepreneur. It's really cool. And people are like, really? You know, we like hanging out outside and tending our goats or whatever we're doing, and we don't care about that stuff. And, you know, I don't think it's really the right thing anymore. Uh, You know, it becomes a a very much of a thing that is kind of like the, you know, the activity of being a missionary or something. You have a belief system. You think it's a good thing for other people. You are presenting it to other people. But, you know, I don't think one can say that being a tech entrepreneur is any more uh, sort of uh, profoundly... Um, you know, uh, wonderful than lots of other kinds of things. I mean, people have different kinds of things they want to do. I think the challenge is always, uh, the challenge that I see is always, you know, when people know what there is out there and have really internalized what those things are, and they say, nah, I don't want that, fine. But it's like, I didn't know there was a thing like that out there. Wow, that's really cool. That's really what I want to do getting people to the point where they at least know what's out there is really an important thing. And and sometimes people have a tremendous knee-jerk reaction of, oh, I'd never do a thing like that, typically because their background is very different from that. And even though it's a thing that for whatever the personality or skills or whatever, it's like, that's a fantastic thing to do for them. If only they could think to do it, but their background is is pointed in a different direction. And they just sort of have the internal view that that's just not the kind of thing they they should think about doing or that that's not whether it's not a thing people will approve of them doing or, or whatever else. And, you know, I think that's one of the challenges is that's something where if you can present to people what the possibilities are, and often it's a big kind of puzzle because, you know, there are things the world offers. There are things the world is newly offering. Often there are things where there's a new opportunity in the world. You know, nobody was a professional video gamer before or nobody was a, uh, I don't know, a... a um, a, a, you know, a, a blockchain, you know, distributed finance, whatever person who is doing, I'm, I'm sure there are at any given time in history, there are new opportunities that open up new kinds of things that people can do. And sometimes those are wonderful things to get into. And sometimes it's like, if you go say to somebody, what are all the possible careers I could do? Uh, they're not going to mention the things where there are only 20 people in the world doing that yet. And it's, you know, it's a rapidly expanding thing. And I think that um, uh, sometimes those things are people think, oh, my gosh, I can't do that. There's hardly anybody doing that. I mean, you know, that wouldn't be that's 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 just not sort of uh, I don't know. uh, It's not the thing that one does, so to speak. And I think that's a that's a challenge that one can try to get over and one can try to help other people get over of, you know, well, just because other people aren't doing it doesn't mean it's it's not a good idea. Um, I mean, you know, in a sense, the story of a lot of things I've done in my life is there are things where people had tried to do those things before, and maybe they concluded those things are impossible. You can't do a thing like that. You know, it doesn't make sense to build, I don't know, some general computational knowledge engine or to try and figure out fundamental theory of physics or something, or to try and do a bunch of other things like this. People are like, the general vibe is, oh, that's just not possible. You know, why would anybody try to do that? I think the thing that has been one of my personal achievements is being, I suppose, confident, arrogant, however you look at it, enough that it's like just because people haven't done it and people say it's impossible doesn't mean I shouldn't try. And quite often, and you know, when I, when I say, why aren't people doing this? One answer might be because it's a bad idea and everybody else has figured out it's a bad idea, but I didn't figure out yet. It's a bad idea. Another answer could be they just didn't think of it. And in my life, I'm a little bit shocked at the number of times where I, where I think of things and it's like, that's an obvious thing. And it's like, uh, why aren't other people doing this? I've kind of stopped asking that question very much. I mean, I kind of make a little bit of an ask of that question just in case I'm missing something. Like that's really a dumb idea and everybody else figured out it was a dumb idea, but I didn't notice why it was dumb. And I've kind of taken more the point of view of I can reason through why I think it's gonna work then by golly, I'll trust myself and I'll I'll try and do it, and you know I think that's been a, a a quite successful thing for me. I'm you know it has the advantage that I have lots of years of experience now and quite a lot of judgment about what's going to work and what's not. And I think that that has I've been gradually getting more wild in terms of the types of projects that I try to do. Um, and uh, I think you know if I go back forty years or something. I don't know. I, I did okay picking projects then even ones that seemed impossible at that time. But I think some of the ones today, I wouldn't have had the judgment to know whether they were a good idea or not at that time. Let's see. Question from Hunter. What would I like to see younger, newer programmers focusing on? Do I think the computer science community is focusing too much on video games, dating apps, etc.? You know, at any given time there's always sort of some methodology opens up some new idea opens up you know blockchain opens up or uh, you know augmented reality opens up and it opens up because something changes in the world because some new piece of hardware becomes available because some new software capability becomes available because some uh, societal feature changes something like that there's some new thing that comes on the horizon and it is always interesting to be part of the new thing. And it's always, if you, you know, you have to not pick the new thing too early. Like if you were picking, I don't know, space travel back in the 1960s, there's a long time to wait before it becomes something broadly doable. Or if you pick virtual reality back in the, in the late 1980s when it was first on the scene, a long time to wait. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a certain thing where things have a certain time when they can really come into, into their own. Uh, you know, one of the things that's a story of my life kind of, kind of thing is that a lot of stuff I've invented with computational language and, and so on, I know that, and, and also with some areas of science, uh, you know, it's kind of a funny feeling because I know it's absolutely inexorable that in some number of decades, these things will be like central things, and I've seen that happen with a bunch of things that I've invented in past decades. But it's kind of a strange feeling because it's like, I'm doing these things now. And some people are saying, oh, nobody cares about that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody really understands it. But it's like, I know in some number of decades, this is going to be the thing that everybody cares about. But it's kind of like, it's a strange thing because one's sort of ahead of that of that curve. And it's if you're too far ahead of the curve, then it's it's kind of hard to make a living doing it, for example, because there's there's kind of not enough sort of ambient interest and energy in the world around that. It can be sort of perhaps intellectually satisfying to be that far ahead, so to speak, but it isn't a very practical thing. So, you know, I think at any given time, there will be sort of the new thing that people are concentrating on. Eventually, the obvious, the low-hanging fruit will have been picked. And then, you know, the innovation seems to go down, so to speak, because the obvious, you know, big things have, have happened. And then there'll be another thing, and you know those are it's it's good to 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 think about those kinds of things now there are things where a lot of you know this, there are sometimes frameworks like this idea of computational language and just sort of make the computer know everything it can know and so on that's a general framework that i've been sort of operating within for 40 years and that's a framework general enough that it's a, it's going to be a continuing framework i don't think i mean some of these other things uh, you're mentioning like video games Dating apps and so on, I, I think, well, video games are interesting, not that I play them at all. I'm afraid I'm pretty ignorant about them, although I know many people in that, in that industry. Um, you know, it, it feels like it's like, are our, our books going to be obsolete? Well, you know, you can uh, debate whether the paper version is or isn't. But the concept of writing things and expressing ideas in that kind of way, that hasn't gone out of style for a very, very long time and I don't think will. In fact, um, uh, you know that, that's a, given humans the way we are, that's a pretty good way for us to express ourselves. And I think insofar as video games are another level of expression, so to speak, like books, like movies, like whatever else, it's like they are, they are more a carrier than they are a sort of technology development kind of thing. And, and of course, gradually there's new technology that gets inserted into you know, better graphics, better AI, better whatever else. And those are things which are more kind of the platform level, um, but that's a, that's a different story. Um, but you know, I would say that the, the thing to realize in, in terms of computer science and so on, I mean, okay, I, I think I have been on a little bit of a campaign you know, I I run into kids all the time who are like, I'm gonna study computer science. And I'm like, really? You know, what do you actually want to do? And they explain, well, I want to use computers, but I'm really interested in biology, in, in uh, uh, something to do with, you know, in art, in whatever else. And it's like, why are you studying computer science? What is computer science anyway? The idea of computational X for all X, that's a very powerful idea. That's like saying, uh, it's, it's kind of the... the the modifier computational is that's the way of thinking about things that is sort of the emerging strong way of thinking about things in the 21st century. And sort of everything is going to be computational X. And if you can't think computationally and you just say, computers aren't my thing, I don't understand anything computational, you're kind of locking yourself out of a lot of future progress. But that's very different from saying, I want to study computer science. The question is, what is computer science? And Historically, well, it, it's, had, it's had sort of a complicated history, but a lot of the kinds of things that were computer science were actually quite theoretical things. They're things I personally am a big enthusiast of and have even contributed some to. Um, it's, uh, but they're things that I wouldn't claim were for everybody. I mean, not everybody needs to know how compilers work. Not everybody needs to know you know, how finite automata work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what computer science became, there was a period of time when, when many of the elite universities didn't have computer science departments. I remember in the 1980s, um, when I was, uh, uh, you know, there were many of the fanciest universities didn't have a department called computer science. And then what happened was there was a demand for programmers and people who could, as artisans, effectively write code to do things, you know, demand for a couple of million of such people or whatever in in the U S and that and then they said, we want to learn that stuff somewhere. Where are we going to learn it? Well, it's it's kind of like at some level a trade school to learn, you know, let's write some particular kind of computer code. Let's understand how to use some particular kind of computational framework. It's absolutely a good thing to learn as an artisan, a good trade to be in. It's not clear how that relates to the science of computer science. It's really trade school and Not that it's not a good good thing, but it's different. It's not really a science school, so to speak, in the same sense that you might learn physics or something like that. Now, there is a part of computer science that is the theoretical side that is more like physics or math or whatever else. That stuff, I think it's super interesting. I think, um, But it's something where often when people say, I'm studying computer science, what it actually means is I'm learning to program. And one of the issues about learning to program is There's a question. Learning to program in the abstract is really boring. You really have to to program, to learn to program in an interesting way, you have to program something. And that's been a bit of a challenge because what's ended up happening is computer science departments have kind of grafted on these areas like, oh, I don't know, robotics, machine learning, cryptography, things like this, which are a little bit outside of the pure programming purely about computers. They have something else involved in them, partly because... Those are things where you can sort of apply the programming activity Uh, you know i think it's worth realizing that another thing about well okay what is worth learning what's worth learning is how to think computationally and that's not about how to write you know for loops and classes and whatever else that's low level computer programming and that's a different thing programming a computer is different from thinking computationally if you can you know a lot of things i do for example Uh, you know, I'll conceptualize something computationally. Okay, I, I also can write code pretty well. So I'll often actually implement it because I have this language, this computational language that we built for doing exactly that from going from something that has been conceptualized computationally to something that can be implemented computationally. But actually the activity of conceptualizing it computationally and implementing it doesn't even quite have to be done by the same person. It's, but the important thing is to understand how can, to conceptualize things computationally. I don't know. A, example, uh, it's not a particularly good example, but it's one I've used a few times, is uh, you know, have the following problem. You're going to make a map I'm somewhere on the Earth. You're told a lat-long location on the Earth, and you want to know what is the right zoom level to show that map, to show something useful to people, okay? It's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, showing a zoom level of, of you know, where you're showing a one-mile Region is probably not useful. It's just a big blob of blue. If you're in the middle of Manhattan, a one-mile uh, radius might actually be too much. So the question is, what's the criterion? How do you figure out what the right radius to use actually is? Is that a problem in computer science? Not really. It's a problem that's a mixture of sort of general thinking in the world, more like philosophy, I suppose, than. And together with knowing things about the world, and then it's like, how do you think about that computationally? Do you do it based on the, the kind of number of features in that region that you can compute with some kind of uh, uh, information measure on the, on the map content? Do you do it based on the number of people who live there? You know, all these different things. And you can imagine different ways to do that. But that kind of thing of thinking that through sort of in computational form That's what is is kind of uh, sort of the computational thinking thing. And that's what I think is is a really valuable thing to learn how to do, how to take something that you're generally thinking about and how to think about that computationally. It's the job of, of us, basically, to make a computational language which can as easily as possible go from the pure thinking to that implementation. But you know, I think it is a pity we haven't yet seen universities kind of generically offering computational X. Really, the field needs a different name. It isn't computer science. The, the, the great field that is computer science is the one that's about theories of things and about you know how do you create different kinds of you know, language structures and operating systems and protocols and this, that, and the other. That's uh, and, you know, theories about, uh, about uh, computational complexity classes and all those kinds of things. There's a lot of great stuff in computer science. It just the, the artisanal work of writing code is a different thing, and the notion of thinking computationally about things in the world is again a different thing. And, but those are often bundled together in, oh, it's all computer science. It's a challenge that hasn't really been adequately met at universities, Universities have this problem that, well, it's, you know, every organization when it gets big has a habit of getting siloed into things. And so it tends to be at universities. It's like, well, we've got a computer science department, a physics department, got a math department. Oh, this computational X thing, where should that be? Should there be people in the English department who are doing computational literature or should it be that that's all in the computer science department doesn't really fit, but there's sort of outreach from there to the, to the, um, Uh, to the English department. I think the ultimate answer will be that computation is a methodology that is very broad, much broader than mathematics, for example, um, that will find its way into all these different fields. And there will be, you know, courses in computational X in all those different departments, not, oh, the computer science department teaches everything to do with computers. That's, That's sort of not the right thing. But how you get there. And how that works with the sort of, uh, you know, with the, with the personnel at universities and the way they're organized and, uh, and so on, that's a, that's a challenging issue. And, and even more so, I would say, at the, uh, at the K-12 level, at the sort of middle school, high school-ish level, you know, we're seeing, I, I would say, the, there have been about five waves of teaching people to code started with BASIC in the 1960s. It was a pretty good wave, actually, back then. And it's had multiple waves of, oh, we're going to teach everybody, you know, I don't know, C, JavaScript, Pascal, whatever. You you take your pick. Um, Unfortunately, one of the things that's happened with all these waves, and I say waves because they've gone up and they've gone down again. Um, And, you know, part of the problem is it's A, the technology changes, and B, it's kind of boring. For many people, it's not boring for people who want to be software engineers. That's um, you know, then that's like, this is great. I want to learn this stuff. It's all good. But for people who want to apply computational thinking to things, learning all that low level stuff is really kind of like painful. It's, it's, it's like when I was learning math, uh, I think my, my probably lowest point was when I was about 10 years old, which was like a year or two before. I started getting really interested in physics and had learned calculus and all those kinds of things. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe it was age, I was maybe eight, nine, 10 or whatever, you know, math consisted of doing stupid arithmetic and algebra. And it was like, like, I don't like chasing these minus signs. I don't find this interesting. I don't know why I'm doing this. This is really boring. You know, I don't like it now. Okay, I did realize maybe two years after that, I kind of realized I can get computers to do these things. And that's, uh, and therein began a long story that uh, that sort of continues to today. But, you know, the thing that the takeaway from that kind of math was, this is boring. Whereas I like math very much. I do a lot of stuff with math. I've spent a lot of my life doing things with math. I really like it, but I don't like that kind of mundane low-level stuff which happily I've delegated personally to computers, although I, I take a certain perverse pleasure out of slowly learning my multiplication tables. I think I'm done now for, for at least up to you know probably 12 times 12. Um, I, and I've kind of, you know, at some point I, I, you know, I've, I've gradually, it's like, when did I ever need to know what six times nine? Okay, it's I learned seven times eight when I was seven years old, because that was the question that nobody else knew the answer to. So that was the cool one to learn. But many of the others I just didn't learn for years. Um, and I've gradually I've taken a certain perverse pleasure out of noting when I finally learnt it, I have a decent memory. So, so, you know, I do remember it once I've learnt it, but, um, uh, you know, I've usually had some particular reason to learn that one anyway, the, 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 beside the point. But I think that the main issue is that with teaching computer science, coding, whatever else, the thing one doesn't want is you teach a bunch of kids stuff that they find boring. And then they say, I don't like this. I don't like computers. I don't like doing anything to do with. With you know writing any kind of computational you know code type thing, because it was they were exposed to some sort of rather uh, you know mechanical version of it, and so I think it's a challenge. You know I've done a little bit to try and address this. We've tried to do more. You know it so happens that the technology stack we've built is kind of uniquely suitable to getting through computational X without going through low-level programming, and sort of how that. Affects what should be done educationally. Interesting question. I think there are clear answers. It's not so easy to get from from there to you know there from from here, so to speak. The there is pretty clear. The getting there is complicated because of the the way it works in terms of people and and learning new skills and things like that. Let's see. Uh, oh boy, there's so many questions, many interesting questions here. Um, Question from Jonah, to be creative, do I need to know how to change people's beliefs? There are many people in this world with many creative ideas, um, though how probable is it that I am the one uh, to prove a science like no other? Well, let's see. You know, the question is, if you figure something really great out, but you can't convince anybody else of what you figured out, do you still feel good about it? I think that's a complicated question. I think that, you know, I get all the time people sending me mails saying, you know, I've got a theory of physics, too. Okay, unfortunately, most of those are really kind of non-starters because there's a lot that we already know in physics. And if you say I've got a theory of physics, too, and it's based on what you learn in high school physics and it ignores everything else that's happened in the last 150 years of physics, that's not a good place to start because you're kind of handicapping yourself dramatically. But I suspect there are many people who, who uh, you know, I, I think it's, I can see why it's fun to think about physics, even if you're not going to go pro, so to speak, and, and learn all of the, the intermediate levels. But it's still, if you say, have you figured it all out? The answer is probably no. If you, you know, if you haven't taken You know, if you haven't done anything with the 150 years of work that's been done, sort of that goes from high school physics to what we now know, so to speak. And I think this question of, you know, can you be the solo person who figured out something great? Uh, You know, history says there are people who figured out great things. And, you know, I've been studying recently a lot about the history of philosophy because I'm kind of interested in connecting the things we're doing with our physics project today with, um, uh, with the things that people have done in philosophy in the past. And it is remarkable how many philosophers there were who, who were not well-recognized in their time. And fortunately, their work survived, at least in some form. And then people said, boy, that person really knew a lot of stuff. They really figured out a lot of stuff. Now we know what they were talking about and so on. But they've been dead for 100 years. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the, it's more fun If the things you've done kind of come to fruition when you're around to see them, I think, come to fruition, that's definitely more fun. Um, At least that would be my theory of things. But, um, uh, you know, in this idea that there will be the kind of solitary thinker who figures a lot of stuff out. Okay, I mean, you know, my own experience is that uh, at some, okay, I like working with other people. There are people where I find that they work well as kind of muses for what I'm doing. Like, I've thought about a bunch of stuff. I talk to them. Even if they say almost nothing, I realize I understand things better. Honestly, one of the reasons that I like doing these live streams is because you guys are implicitly muses for the things that I try to think about. The effort to try and explain stuff to you all is very helpful to me. And so that's kind of the... uh, you know even though i'm I'm sadly only getting feedback in a, a kind of a thin channel here it's still that's a very helpful thing and I think that for me kind of the effort to explain things to people the effort to interact with people in some form um, is is useful on the other hand, at some point, I kind of have to break off from that and I just have to think about stuff because if i'm like i, I don 't want to be dependent on other people 's thinking and i don't want to be you know if i 've got some idea. You know, there are plenty of things where I think I know what's going on, I, I think I have a pretty good idea, and everybody's going to tell me, oh, no, that's not quite right, you have to do this, you have to do that, what about going this direction, what about going that direction? I need to be more obstinate, and you know, I have learned over the years to be quite obstinate, and just like, I think I know what's going on, I think I know the story, I'm just going to keep going in that direction, thank you for that opinion, that's fine. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'll tell you in, in a month that, yes, you had it exactly right, and I didn't know what I was talking about, and that, that certainly happened plenty of times. But right now, I'm just going to be obstinate to go in the direction that I'm going in. I think that if you are truly solitary, I think that's a very challenging thing to do. Um, may not be impossible, but it's challenging. I'm not sure I could personally pull that off, for example. Um, it is true, though, that there are many projects I've done. For example, probably the biggest one was my book, New Kind of Science, where I you know, pretty much people, I I had started when I started working on that, I spent about 10 years working on it. Um, uh, You know, when I started working on it, I would talk to people about it, and people would say, hey, did you think about this? Oh, that's really interesting. What about that? And I realized if I'm ever going to get this project finished, I just have to concentrate, 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 do what I think should be done, just ignore all that other stuff. And that turned out to be the right strategy. Um, even though it might be sort of socially less fun, so to speak, that was that was the right strategy for that. But I, I kind of think that if you're in a situation where, uh, I mean, it's you have to be very sure of yourself. If you're going to say, I'm, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do it for many, many years, and I'm sure it's right, even though everybody else says it isn't. Um, you know, there that, that probably comes a point where you say, look at the other things I've done I, I kind of know I know what I'm talking about well enough that I believe myself, um, but whether you should do that from the get-go without having being able to say, "Well look, I did these other smaller things, and they worked out well," I'm not sure that's a great strategy. Oh boy. So many interesting questions here. From Jorman: Do I think the current democracies are the apex of history, or are a better systems to organize societies yet to come? I think I've talked about this a little bit uh, at other times. You know, I think the one thing to realize is some aspects of the organization of society are driven by technology, and we do have new technologies. And the actual role of between social media and AI and computational language, the actual role of those things in the organization of society is yet to be figured out. I mean, computational language, well, you know, literacy, for example, that led to the uh, sort of more serious democracy kinds of, uh, you know, probably led to the, the possibility of widespread democracy. Um, computational language, it probably, plus AI, probably leads to another level of something. It, you know, AI means that you can have more microscopic decisions, you can have kind of uh, more things that get done according to definite kind of global rules, but happen more microscopically you can have things you know computational language means people get to express their preferences in a more nuanced way rather than just checking a box somewhere um and you know how that relates to uh, uh how uh, you know and, and also sort of ai uh, in the In the way that it 's operating in you know social media and so on it 's like it 's picking content and there are ways that that 's controlled et cetera et cetera et cetera and people do you know for a while they were saying hey it 's not my fault it was just the AI I think people have given up on that now by the time it 's like press this button and eject somebody from this platform or whatever you 've kind of you 're kind of showing through that they're actually humans behind the curtain, so to speak but um uh you know for for I think that um, uh, in um, uh, you know this question of whether technology leads to the possibility of of new sort of societal structures, uh, that I think the answer is probably yes. Um, You know, have we? There are things where over the course of time, history, you know, there's there's a long history of people saying, "Hey, we figured it out now. Let's just do this," and then people do that for a century, half a century, whatever else, they say, whoops, there was this horrible bug. That was a really bad idea. And, you know, you can see that in a lot of the, uh, the tides of history that have happened in the 20th century and so on, of people like, this is a great idea. Let's, you know, we've got a theory of how society works. Let's just operate that way. I think probably one of the more uh, extreme examples though was in, I think it's Chile, this project the Project Cyber Sin, which was a project where they kind of had a you know, Star Trek-like control room that was just going to control everything in the economy and control the country. And it turns out that the science just doesn't work that way. You know, One of the things people don't realize is that people say, oh, we've got science. Now we can predict everything. We can just run a country by moving levers around and we can make people do this or that thing just by moving levers around. Turns out, that what we now know from science, my own efforts particularly, I suppose, um, that um, uh, we're, you know, it's not this idea that just because you know the underlying rules by which something operates, now you can predict everything. That's just not true. Um, that was the, you know, what, what happened in the, the sort of the big flow of science, I suppose, is, you know, there was throughout most of history, people just said, if it doesn't make common sense to me, I don't believe it. And then particularly along came Copernicus, you know, close to 500 years ago now, um, saying, gosh, golly, you know, the earth actually isn't the center of the universe and isn't standing still, even though it seems to us like it's standing still. Look, you can sort of scientifically realize that something different is true. And that kind of moment led to this giant trickle down to the point where people say, It is not for me to understand science just says this or that. And science knows what it's talking about and it's objective, and so on. And therefore, I should follow science. And then another corollary, science can do everything. Science can predict everything. Well, it turns out we now know that science can't predict everything. It is rather easy to set up a, a, a scientific system where you say, here are the rules for the system now I want you to tell me what's the system going to do. And you say, I can't tell. The only way I can tell what the system is going to do is by running the system and seeing what it does. And that's this phenomenon of computational irreducibility. And that's something we see in many abstract systems. And we see it as a practical matter in many practical systems in the world. So it's a, it's a situation in which, in a sense, science is kind of eating itself from the inside. Science is saying that science has limitations. But I don't think that message has gotten through in general yet, and people still tend to believe that, you know, science answers everything, so to speak. And, you know, that, that's, um, and that has led to particularly some, what turn out to be slightly crazy in many ways, kind of theories about the organization of society where we say, let's just organize things according to science, in quotes, um, I mean, that's often science is often used as an excuse. It has been used as an excuse for some some terrible, crazy things that have been done over the past hundred years or so, um, where people say it's scientifically proven that blank, blank, blank. Um, and so let's get everybody to follow that. And it turns out that, well, the science actually didn't prove it at all. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, it turns out to be just a really bad idea, even though maybe everybody involved in that chain of the science proves this or that was operating in perfectly good faith. Maybe they weren't, but maybe they were. They just believed that, but it just turns out it wasn't true. Uh, one of the challenges in today's world is you know, sometimes I'll see things, actually rather often, I'll see things reported in the news, You know, this or that thing, medical, epidemiological, this or that thing. And it's like, that can't possibly be right. That can't possibly be. The evidence could not possibly tell you that the type of data you have could not possibly answer this question as definitively as the answer is being reported. But yet, you know, one sees kind of decisions be made and the public go in a direction where it's like, well, you know, the science was presented in this or that way and the science proved this or that. So let's all go and run off in that direction. And and I think that's a I mean, honestly, in this pandemic, I think it's been a terribly damaging thing that that there are many aspects of what's happened where we just don't know the science well enough to be able to say. Now, it's a complicated decision, and it's a decision, you know, if one is, does leadership kinds of things, it's a decision one has to address a lot. What do you do in the event of uncertainty? If you're leading people and there is uncertainty, what do you do? How much of that uncertainty do you communicate? And how much do you just say, we should go in this direction. That's the best direction, I think, to go in. And, you know, you don't even discuss what oh, it's kind of uncertain and this might be going on and that might be going on and so on. I personally think that decisions that have been made about how much of the science and the uncertainty in the science to explain haven't been done correctly. I think that the that people have believed that the public, so to speak, is, is really much dumber than it actually is. Um, I think that people... You know, I think that the challenge sometimes is when you're talking about science, you know, how does this kind of, uh, you know, immunological thing work? You know, you kind of assume, oh, people aren't going to understand. We just have to tell them this or that. I think that really what should be done is make more effort to explain it. You know, I think that it's like you can make a bad user interface for a computer. You can make a bad computer language. You can write a bad piece of English where people won't understand it. And where you can just say, well, the answer is, you should just do this, because I can't explain to you what's going on. But the fact is, if you put the effort into explaining it, if you put focus on that, then I think if you do your job well in explaining, then you have a good chance to have people actually understand. And when people actually understand, it's much more likely that they'll make the right decisions, do the right things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I I think that it's been a shame that more effort hasn't been put into science communication in uh, explaining both what's known and what isn't known. And trying trying to sort of say, and again, people worry that if you tell people we just don't know, then people will just freak out. I don't know, I don't think that's the case, but I'm not sure. I think if you explain what's known, I think people are much happier knowing what's actually known and what's not known than just being fed something where at the moment where they're fed it, they say, oh, that's great. And then later on, they realize, hmm, we were we were completely misled. We're really we really upset at this point. So maybe people forget quickly enough. I don't know, but but uh, I, I personally think that the um, uh, that a lot more should have been done and should be done in kind of communicating what's known and what's not known. But I think that in terms of what you know, I think that technology more so than science is likely to lead to. Uh, sort of different possibilities for things that become possible in societies. I mean, you know, even a very basic thing like pricing, you know, the idea that things have a definite price, as opposed to the idea that sort of the price will be negotiated between AIs so as to optimize this or that thing. That even right there makes a difference. I mean, you know, we're talking about inflation and things. You know, things have prices right now. Most things have prices. Not everything has prices as such. I mean, there are things that have complicated, oh, you know, depending on exactly what you want and the moment at which you try and buy it and the amount of other people who've bought a, a, a seat on that plane or whatever else, it'll be different. Anyway, the, um, let's see. Oh, boy, so many questions here. You know what? I'm going to skip to the end here just so, so I don't uh, just keep going. Um, uh, okay, there's a question here from Franco. Uh, asking, have I ever experienced anxiety or other kind of mental health problems in relation to managing a business and my time? You know, I, I've been very fortunate. I, I am a pretty, you know, for whatever reason, whatever luck of the draw, or whatever, uh, you know, I am a pretty kind of level sort of operating person. I don't get, uh, I suppose, maybe, uh, you know, there are things that have happened which are really exciting. I don't get that excited, but I also don't get that down either. Um, and you know, that's been, a, um, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, just one of those things that one can be fortunate in that not fortunate in that. In terms of, of uh, one thing I suppose that helps in my life is that I do a lot of different things. So if everything I was doing was all concentrated in on this one activity, then maybe it will be a different thing. But at any given time, there's a whole portfolio of things going on. And typically, they're not all broken at the same time. One of them might have some problems, but then there are five others that are just steaming forward. And and that, I think, really helps. But I think, really, it is, you know, for better or worse, it's kind of a luck of the draw type thing that um, some people have a more... And, you know, it goes both ways because it's kind of like some people, it's like you might be you know, when something good happens, like you figure out, you've realized how physics works or something. It's like, oh, you should be really excited and like super excited and like bouncing off walls. And it's like, well, I, I don't get that way. I, I, you know, I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, this is nice, but it's, it's, you know, you kind of, it's uh, bo- both sides uh work that way. You know, I, I tried to do this study. I was curious whether I had kind of um, changes of mood with seasons and things like this. So I looked at the uh, kind of sentiment analysis of my email over the last 30 years or so. It's really flat. Now that may be because of bad measurement. You know, I was kind of curious whether I had times when I was, you know, happier, sadder, whatever, not that I could find, um, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of test to do sentiment analysis across lots of email. You know, e- email may not be the best thing to do sentiment analysis on, but, but it's, it's okay, probably. Um, so that's um, uh, yeah. So and I, I don't have um, um, uh, much much to, to offer there. Um, Atori asks, why should one start a startup when computer scientists are super well paid in existing companies? Well, it depends what you want to do. You know, the, the real reason to start a startup is because you want something to happen that the world isn't making happening otherwise, happen otherwise. If what you're going to do is just the same as is going to happen anyway, why do you need to do it? At least that's my point of view. You know, what should drive somebody to do a startup is that they really want to do something. Well, maybe they want a lifestyle where they don't have a boss um, or they don't have a boss in the same sense. But I think the the, the better reason is because they really want something to happen. They really want some product to exist. They really want to use that product. They really think such a product will be really cool, or whatever it is, or a service, or whatever. And, and that's why they want to do it. Rather than, you know, I can make more money. You know, I have to say that with fairly few exceptions, the the let me do this because I'll make more money doing that, particularly when the thing being done is something with a certain degree of risk. I have rarely seen that work out well. When, when the primary motivation is just, let's make money doing this. When somebody says, I'm going to start a company because they're going to make a lot of money that way. Uh-huh. You know, that's, it, you're going to put a lot of work into it, and it's going to have some probability of success, some probability of failure. If you don't really, really care about the thing you're doing, its probability of success is much lower. And, you know, you're making a lot of trade-offs when you put all that effort into that particular thing. So I think, you know, when it's a purely financial calculation, if you don't, you know, if you're fine writing code in a, you know, you're doing something, you don't necessarily care about the outcome, you're just getting a paycheck, writing code, and you are happy doing that, great. Just do it. Don't put yourself through the pain of trying to do a startup where you're you know, having to work 100-hour weeks, and you're doing this, and you're, you, know, you can't, don't have any time for anything else, and it's all very complicated, and you have all sorts of issues that come up, and, and so on, and so on, and so on. Why put yourself through that if you're happy with something where somebody else is providing the environment? I mean, in a sense, for example, for myself, I knew that I was not happy with any environment that anybody else was sort of going to provide for me. So, I had to sort of build my own environment, and that's not true for everybody. I mean, I like to think that the environment we've built in our company is good for the people who work at our company. Uh, looks like seems like it it, it uh, generally does very well in the, in those regards. Um, but uh, you know that's something where if somebody else is going to build that environment for you and they're just going to like deliver it, here's the environment, be in here uh, and do what you want to do. Great, take it but if that doesn't exist, or there's something that you want to have happen in the world that just isn't happening, well, then you have to go stick your neck out and do a startup or whatever else. Um, You know, I, I would say that one of the traps, by the way, is that people, you know, they go through school, they get a job, the job starts paying them more, pretty soon they're trapped. They can never change jobs, they can never change what they're doing. And then they wake up again a few decades later and they say, oh my gosh, I spent all this time doing something I really wasn't that interested in, but I had to because I had you know, the mortgage and the this and the that, and I needed to make that amount of money. Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, that's a reason to not get into something where you're just doing it by default because you can and because you earn money doing it. If you're satisfied doing that, Great. And, and I think something that's happened increasingly is people take their hobbies more and more seriously. You know, when I was a kid in England, um, I don't know, the British eccentric is a, is, a, is a very common thing. There are a lot of people in England, there were a lot of people, I don't know if it's still true, who were like, I'm a very serious about my hobby of doing something very weird and obscure, of, you know, um, building model airplanes and bottles or something. Um, but, you know, the, the people who would be very, very serious about these hobbies and, and that was the main thing they were really getting out of life, was the thing that they were doing for their hobby, which they weren't getting paid to do it. They weren't, you know, they were going into an office, they were working, they were making a paycheck, then they were going home and they were doing their hobby. And I think that there have been times when there's been a decrease in hobbying. I, I have the feeling in the US that hobbying was a little less uh, a thing uh, in past years. I think that through the internet, particularly, uh, hobbying has kind of you know, been on the on the rise of people who say, well, usually I do this, but I also have this thing where I'm doing a blog and I'm doing a, a this and a that and the other, um, and uh, you know, I think that's potentially a very healthy way to live life, so to speak. Is that? Uh, but but people, but one of the things that I see is people who say, well, I got into being a profession X person early in life, and that's what I do, and they say, but weren't you really interested in this? Oh, yeah, but I don't really do that. I, I, and so I, why don't you do that for a hobby? Oh, well, I can't really be bothered. Okay, well, that's fine. That's a self-answering question, so to speak. If you're really excited about it, you're going to take, you know, if you can spend that time for two hours every evening or something to do that hobby, then you'll do it. And if you don't, probably, probably. I mean, it depends. You know, if, you're, if you have to work every hour to just, you know, make ends meet, That's a different thing. But if you're watching television for three hours a day, then you could be doing your hobby for three hours a day. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, I think, and and this question about whether you have the drive to do that, well, that's kind of a self-answering question, I suppose, at that level. Well, just a couple more, and then I should... um, uh, it's a comment about um, from memes about my friend Dick Feynman, a uh, well known physicist who died in 1987, um, 87, 88, around then, 87, I think. Um, the uh, asking, I think, in response to something I was saying before is that why uh, Feynman liked explaining uh, neutrons to plant workers and so on? Yeah, he he enjoyed that. Look, I in a sense I got this idea from him. Of uh, I think I was probably doing it anyway. But but um, uh, you know he liked explaining things to people, and um, he always um, uh, he always enjoyed that. And um, I don't think I uh, you know I don't think I ever really had the conversation with him. I, I mean I remember talking to him a bunch about sort of the process of explaining things, but I don't think that he really explained to me that he explained things to people so he understood them better himself. I'm not sure that really came up so much. Um, I think he was more, you know, I'm going to inform other people rather than it's so much for myself. Although that must have been, I think he enjoyed, he enjoyed communicating ideas to other people. He really enjoyed uh, sort of uh, seeing people kind of light up and understanding ideas. I also enjoy that. Um, it's, that's why this would be more fun in person, so, so to speak, um, than just, looking at the the camera lens so to speak um, let's see all right i just maybe two more and then i should should uh, um i should get going but bennett here is asking saying they just graduated college in business management but fell in love with mathematics and computer science in their senior year is it foolish to go back and get another undergraduate degree um Look, it's one thing to learn the material. That there's several different things. You're passionate about the material. You really want to learn the material. Um, that may or may not come with the desire or need to get the college degree. If you think that's a field you want to do for a living, then having the college degree is probably a useful thing. If it's something where you would find it hard to just be learning those things on your own, then again, go and... You know, go and do the college thing because that's a an environment where you're kind of helped through the process of learning new things like that. Um, I think that um, uh, you know, when it comes to sort of the career planning kind of thing, um, I I would say that you know, look if if things continue the way they are right now, then uh, you know it is a it is kind of a uh, you know, you know, when somebody, when if there's a job on offer that involves doing math and computer science and you learnt it by watching a bunch of MOOCs and there's no credential that says you know it and you come in and you interview for that job, you know, you're gonna have a good chance in, in the current labor market, so to speak, um, better than perhaps in the past. Uh, you know, I think, I think you kind of have to factor, why are you doing, you know, you want to learn the stuff, great learning it is independent from getting the credential or being in an environment where other people are learning it too and where you're kind of babysat in the learning process um i think the um i mean you know i, I don't know in the in the gaming of kind of um uh of, of college and so on i would have thought if you just got a college degree the thing to do is see whether you can hop into a master's degree program um, and uh, and if you maybe have to do a few extra courses to kind of prep for the master's degree program, that's probably a good way to do it. Um, uh, you know, if, if you're if you're ending up doing the whole college degree again, uh, it it seems like a that's um, it seems like I don't think colleges are well set up for I just got this four year college degree now I want to add on another college degree. I'm going to spend another two years worth of courses to do that. I don't think they're well set up for that. I think they kind of expect you to say, okay, I want another extra piece, which is a master's degree, or I want to go back and do the whole four years again. Um, and you know, that that's just uh, lots of time, I suppose. And plus you might very well have done many of the courses already. Okay. I need to go. Cause I've got another meeting I have to go to, but, uh, thanks very much for a lot of really interesting questions. And, um, I look forward to doing this again uh, another, another day. So uh, thanks and bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit StephenWolfram.com.